to another episode of Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. My name is Jillian, and I'm the Morris P. Abram Fellow at UN Watch in Geneva, Switzerland. On March 10th, 2023, as the UN Commission on the Status of Women convened in New York for the first time since Iran was expelled from that body, UN Watch and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights hosted a side event to pay tribute to those who contributed to this achievement and to hear from leading voices on how the world can show solidarity for the women of Iran. The remarks on this podcast were originally delivered at the event. UN Watch Executive Director and Event Chair Hillel Neuer welcomed participants, followed by Canadian Ambassador to the UN Bob Ray, Iranian-American businesswoman and former U.S. diplomat Ghali Amiri, Iranian-born journalist and women's rights activist who is considered to be the driving force behind today's revolution in the making, Masi Alinajad, and Brandon Silver, Director of Policy and Projects at the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Here's UN Watch's Hillel Neuer. Welcome, excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, friends, to our side event to the UN Commission on the Status of Women, which is meeting in its annual session across the street. And uh, this event is entitled Standing with Iranian Women. Our goal is to show solidarity and take action in support of the brave, courageous, suffering women in Iran, all the people of Iran. Uh, at, this, at the time of the meeting of the Commission on the Status of Women, which meets once a year, it is important that there be at least one event that takes note and that celebrates the fact that the Islamic Republic of Iran became the first country in the history of that body, which dates back to the 1940s, the first country in the history of the United Nations to be expelled from that body. There actually was no procedure, unlike at the Human Rights Council, where I'm based in Geneva, there is a stated procedure on how you remove a country. With Iran, there was no procedure, so this was uncharted territory. I would like to read uh, a statement from the Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Shirin Abadi, who couldn't be with us here today, but sent a message. Finally, the world heard the voices of Iranian women and that thanks to the Iran's feminist revolution with the slogan of women, life, freedom, Iran is the country that has passed the most discriminatory laws against women since 1979. During the past 43 years, many women have been killed, imprisoned, or forced to leave Iran, and all they are doing is opposing the unequal situation. In such circumstances, Iran's membership in the Commission on the Status of Women was a mockery of the United Nations and all international laws. Fortunately, the world heard the voice of the Iranian people and expelled Iran from this commission. I'm grateful to all the governments that voted to expel the Islamic Republic of Iran and stand along with the Iranian protesters. You are standing on the right side of history. End of statement. Before we move on to our program, and uh, we're going to have greetings from the Canadian ambassador. We're going to hear from Golia Mary, who flew in just uh, moments ago from Los Angeles to be with us, and with our keynote speaker, Masi Alinajad. Um, I'll just say uh, just two words about what's happening at the United Nations from where I see it. We've had important action that we haven't had before for uh, supporting the women in Iran. We had an emergency session of the Human Rights Council, finally, something we called for 13 years ago with 50 Iranian human rights activists. But finally, it was held in November, the first uh, emergency special session of the Human Rights Council on Iran. They created a commission of inquiry, a fact-finding mission, which is beginning now to take submissions. The next month in December, we had the vote that we've been talking about here, a meeting of the Economic and Social Council, 
to, for the first time ever, to remove a country, Iran, from the UN Commission on the Status of Women. We also had, of course, the General Assembly, a strong resolution on Iran, human rights in Iran. And in Geneva, as we speak, the Human Rights Council is in session and is, uh, will be debating uh, a resolution on human rights in Iran, which I believe will be the strongest it has ever passed. It's not enough for the people of Iran, but uh, it's the beginning. Thank you. Canada's representative to the United Nations, Ambassador Bob Ray, opened the event. This has been a very exciting week at the UN because it's the first time that we've really been back in person. And it's been a celebration of women's equality, which is quite, I think, a very important foundation of the principles of the United Nations. And we have had a number of meetings and celebrations and conferences and talked about the critical importance of these issues. And there's sometimes that people will say, I think the Secretary General said the other day, that if we go at the current pace, it'll be 300 years before we get to where we need to get to. And I, I hesitate to disagree ever with the Secretary General, but I'm going to disagree because I think what he is underestimating is this. If the kind of oppression that we've seen in Iran had been met with total indifference inside and outside the country. And if everybody was just prepared to just put up with it and not ever question or challenge it in any way, shape, or form, then, yeah, I, I would agree. If this is the way people behave in the face of this terrible cruelty and discrimination, then, yes, it, it will take a long time. But that's not what's happening. That's not what is happening today. It's not happening in Iran. It's not happening in Myanmar. It's not happening in Russia, it's not happening in Ukraine, it's not happening in all kinds of places around the world where women and men are leading the fight. And they're taking the fight to the world. And the world is having to respond. We can't sit back and say there's nothing we can do. Iran is a sovereign country, they're allowed to do whatever they want inside their country. Yes, Iran is a sovereign country. No, they're not allowed to do anything they want inside their country. These are very important principles of, of international law that we've fought for for a long time. So I think it's really critically important that we take this opportunity to focus on what's happened the last few months. First of all, I think we have to pay extraordinary tribute to a young woman who just wanted to be herself and just wanted to dress the way she wanted to dress. And that's all she wanted to do. And as a father of three daughters, and I can tell you, I realized as soon as my children hit adolescence that deference was gone as a social phenomenon, disappeared. They wanted to be who they wanted to be. And so I think the feeling of the world went out to the family of Masa Amini because she showed so much courage in just doing that one thing. And yeah, it triggered something. It triggered a reaction around the world, and it triggered a reaction inside Iran. And the reaction is not over, and neither is the oppression. The poisoning is just the latest example of just how bad it can be. Just when you think, well, we've hit a certain bottom here, no, you say, no, there's no bottom for the cruelty, and there's no bottom to the injustice. But there's also no bottom to the courage. And I think that's my last point that I want to make. When you think about it, the thing that actually allows change to happen is a few things. People being less afraid, deciding to be less afraid, and not allowing their lives to be dominated by fear. People having a fundamental sense of hope, that is, that it's got to get better. It just has to. And finally, courage. A willingness to say, yes, we have to advance this. We have to take steps, not foolhardy steps. In every instance, it has to be 
carefully thought out how it's done. But that courage, I think, is putting all of us in a very uncomfortable place. And I think that's where we should be, in a very uncomfortable place. Do we have less courage than they do? Do we have less conviction than they do? Are we prepared to sit back and do virtually nothing? Well, many countries are in that position, frankly, but many of us are not. We're trying to figure out what more can we do? What steps can we take? How do we make sanctions actually work better? And how do we expose the hypocrisy, the double standards, the cruelty, and the nonsense that is spoken at the UN in defense of why we can't do anything? I was really delighted to be able to play that role. And yeah, it was fairly spontaneous, actually, when I did it. But it just occurred to me as I was listening to the arguments that what people were really saying is there's no provision anywhere that allows us to do this, so we can't do it. I'm a lawyer. Well, you say, well, if there's no provision anywhere, that means <laughs> they can't stop you from doing it. As long as you can get the numbers you, and make the arguments, you win. That's the way it is. So we have made progress, but we have a long road to go. And I just want to say how much I'm looking forward to listening to our guests today, who I think are going to chart the course for us and teach us something more about what we need to do. I honestly believe, in my heart of hearts, that we will see the day in my lifetime, which should be very encouraging for all of you, um, where freedom and democracy come back to Iran. I really believe that. I don't believe it's impossible. And people who say, no, it can't happen, you say, no, it's, it's, you're underestimating people and you're underestimating the problems and you're underestimating the resilience and the will, but also you're underestimating how that light stays alive all the time. And it, I really believe that this is what's going to happen. Iranian-American businesswoman and former U.S. diplomat Golia Mary delivered a powerful call to action, urging the EU to designate the IRGC as a terrorist entity. I really want to turn to Massey and say thank you for all that you do. Um, you are just honestly such a superb representative of the women of Iran. You are fearless, you have a purpose, and you're demanding more out of life and those in power. And I really want to salute you. You're a force of nature, and the rest of us are just around here trying to support your way going forward. Iran has recently been much talked about at the UN and around the world. And certainly the uprising of the brave women and men in Iran has fueled these discussions. The hope of the protesters is that they have been able to shed light on the nature of the Islamic Republic as a harmful global power. It really pains me to say this about Iran, a country with such a rich history, with the economic power, with an education level, to essentially be a G15 nation. Iran could be such a force for good instead of exporting terrorism and turmoil. The list is so long, but allow me just a few minutes to share a few examples with you. The Islamic Republic sells drones to Russia to kill Ukrainians or freeze them to death. It has reportedly secretly provided Russia with 100 million bullets and 300,000 shells. Ukraine is filing a complaint against the Islamic Republic with the International Criminal Court on its complicity with Russia on war crimes. Recently, the Islamic Republic orchestrated a cyber attack on Albania's government infrastructure. The attack was so debilitating that Albania, a NATO member, considered invoking Article 5. Along with Russia, the Islamic Republic fanned the fires of the Syrian civil war, leading to millions of refugees leaving their homes. The regime battled, of course, they, they 
made peace today, Saudi Arabia, through a proxy fight in Yemen, devastating that country. It denies the Holocaust, has bombed a Jewish community center in, in Argentina, killing hundreds, and has just recently been implicated in a synagogue shooting in Germany. And the regime takes hostages, mainly dual nationals, and leverages these innocent human beings as bargaining chips to replenish its coffers. The list goes on and on, but I think I've said enough. But more importantly, Iran is on its way to developing a nuclear weapon. Let's for a moment just ponder the fact that over 30 plus countries have a civilian nuclear energy program, but we never hear about them. The Islamic Republic denies interest in developing a weapon and cites Islamic scripture. Yet Iran's relationship with the IAEA has been rocky and unfortunately riddled with falsehoods. Iran has lied about its secret nuclear weapons program, the Ahmad plan, it was developing in early 2000s. The IAEA found enriched uranium particles at non-disclosed locations in Iran, which were supposed to be devoid of any nuclear activity. Again, IAEA says that Iran's explanations were basically false. On February 19th, it was reported that IAEA inspectors caught Iran enriching uranium to 84% purity, which is very close to the 90% needed for a nuclear bomb. After IAEA's recent visit, the Islamic Republic promised to increase cooperation. However, Mr. Grossi could not or would not confirm that Iran had agreed to provide access to information or handing over previous footage and data at nuclear-related sites. The U.S. Undersecretary of Defense told a congressional hearing just a few weeks ago that Iran could make enough fissile for one nuclear bomb in about 12 days. The Islamic Republic, unfortunately, for long has been a student of North Korea. They understand full well that their ticket to longevity is a nuclear weapon. It's only at that time that they will become untouchable. If Iran acquires a nuclear weapon, the region, including Saudi Arabia and others, will be next. And this is the world that we will be facing. So what is our way forward with Iran? Diplomacy, obviously, is always the preferred way, and diplomacy should always win. Diplomacy, however, requires trust. Trust is reliability. Trust reinforces confidence. And diplomacy requires two willing and reliable negotiating partners. Unfortunately, throughout Iranian history of uprisings and revolutions, and in Iranian lore, the clergy or mullahs do not have a reputation for reliability. The current Islamic regime, unfortunately, lies like it breathes, eliminating any semblance of being trustworthy. The foreign minister, in a recent CNN interview, essentially said no one has been killed in Iran during the protests. The head of the Iran nuclear program recently said the production of the 84% enriched material was accidental. Going all the way back to the 1906 constitutional revolution in Iran, the first of its kind, by the way, in the Muslim world, Ayatollah Nouri first accepted demands for a democratic change and sided with the revolutionaries. However, Nouri turned against the revolution once he became a favorite of the new Shah. The turnaround was essentially a nail in the coffin of trust with the mullahs. Of course, this is not to say that there are no clergy or mullahs that have had the best interest of the Iranian people in mind. In this regime, however, those who could have been were either eliminated or sidetracked. So what is our way forward? 
Massey actually said something a few weeks ago that really sang to me. She pointed out that Iran has been increasingly aggressive and acts with impunity since no country, large or small, has the will, the courage, or the resolve to stand up against it. In the US, the Pentagon has announced that Iran remains the leading source of instability in the region, and they're moving to treat Iran as a global threat and developing contingency plans. US and Israel carried out the largest ever joint military exercise with 7,500 personnel. Israel being the top target of the Islamic Republic is preparing for the worst and strengthening cooperation with regional countries in the Persian Gulf under the auspices of CENTCOM. But you know, another war in the Middle East is not palatable to the US, to the Iranian people, to the EU, or most likely any other country around the world. The free world currently has its hands full with Russian aggression in Ukraine, and of course dealing with the ailing and inflationary economies that they're all experiencing. But there are other ways to counter the Islamic Republic. I'm not talking about words of solidarity anymore because we're way past that point with the Iranian people and merely denouncing bad actorship. The Iranian people really appreciate the sentiment, but they're looking for action that can improve their lives. Any action that we take must have unity, unity in purpose, unity in outcomes, and unity in action. It's one thing for authoritarian regimes to band together, but it's altogether another to have disharmony in democracies. For example, as long as there's discord between the US and the EU, guess who's the winner? The Islamic Republic. As long as there's discord in the United States on Iran policy between Republicans and Democrats, the Islamic Republic is the winner. In addition, up to now, all policy towards the Islamic Republic has been reactive rather than proactive. And who's come out the winner? The Islamic Republic. So in pursuit of peace, the EU and the US and other democratic countries must join forces to confront the Islamic Republic and develop joint policies. And the most effective way to counter them is to halt their flow of funds. I'm happy that many of the ambassadors of the countries that can help are actually present here today. The hope is that the EU, EU and the US can join forces and bring a group of other democracies together. So first, the EU must designate the IRGC as a terrorist organization who has organized at least 33 terror schemes across Europe in the last five years alone. IRGC reportedly controls up to 80% of Iran's trade and industry. Designation of IRGC as a terrorist organization will provide a more effective means of disrupting the group's financing. In light of the war in Europe's doorsteps in the Ukraine, the designation will also limit the ability of IRGC to support Russia. Joseph Borrell, the EU's high representative for foreign policy, says that the EU Council does not have the legal power for such designation as it requires an opinion from an EU court. Mr. Borrell must be misinformed. The Legal Services of EU Commission has released an opinion that the decision could be from a third country. The case of Zarei versus Iran concluded that the shooting down of Flight 752 by IRGC constitutes quote-unquote terrorist activity under the provisions of the Canadian Criminal Code. So I would like to say to Mr. Borrell, when there is a will, sir, there is a way. In addition, oil sales 
mainly to China, India, South Korea, Japan, and a handful of other countries, is the largest source of revenue to the Islamic Republic. These sales have to be curtailed and stopped. I don't pretend for a moment that taking this step is not economically and politically difficult for many of these democratic countries. But a limited pain today is worth a safer world tomorrow. And finally, a central bank asset freeze similar to Russia's based on crimes against humanity would be ideal, but it requires willpower. However, if such willpower does not exist, escrowed bank accounts are a possibility, and they were done during the Obama administration, and the assets could only be used for food and medicinal purposes and for in-country purchases. So finally, there are so many advantages to a secular democratic Iran. Iran has always been a regional bellwether. A secular Iran will be a beacon of democracy in the Middle East and around the world, while maintaining pride in its religious heritage. Iran can maintain peace in the Middle East and leverage its oil and gas reserves to counteract Russia's growing influence in using energy as a tool of aggression. Political decisions on the Islamic Republic are not easy, but there is no doubt that they will really pay off in the future. Masyalina Jad, the Iranian-born journalist and women's rights activist who is considered to be the driving force behind today's revolution in the making, delivered a stirring keynote address. Is there anything left for me to say after these amazing speakers? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being among you. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for your support for Iranian women, for our progressive revolution called Women, Life, Freedom. I heard your words. I cried, but as you know me, I'm a badass. I have too much demands. You can put pressure on Justin Trudeau and ask him to be tough on Islamic Republic, especially put the Revolutionary Guards on the terrorist list. You can pass this message to him. <laughs> Thank you, you and Watch, for inviting me. I want to say that eight years ago when I launched my campaign against compulsory hijab, I got invited by you and Watch. And that time, my fight against compulsory job and the fight of millions of ordinary women against compulsory job was not that popular. People were hesitating to invite us. People believed that if they talk about force job and if they invite me, they will cause Islamophobia. And many feminists who were my heroes when I was in Iran, and I was begging them to take the side they actually put the blame on me and saying that, why did you attend a UN Watch event in Geneva? Because they're supporting Israel. My message that time was clear, but I want to repeat it here again. We, the women of Iran, we, the people of Iran, we know who our enemy is. And this is not me miles away from Iran saying that. It's the main slogan inside Iran. People refused to step on the flags of America and Israel, and they say that, They lie to us when they say that our enemy is America or Israel. Our enemy is the Islamic Republic. So I myself, as a women's rights activist, I am brave enough if I see anything wrong in Israel, in America, in Europe, in France, everywhere, I'm loud enough to condemn it. I'm loud enough to criticize it. But now, I need democracy 
to stand in the right side of the history. Because right now, Iranian schoolgirls are being under chemical attack. But this is not just one case that you're all witnessing. Those who actually ignored our fight against compulsory hijab, now they are loud enough. And they are trying to show their solidarity and sympathy. But you know what? It didn't need for Mahsa Amini, 22-year-old girl, to get killed for the whole world to wake up. It didn't need for Sarina, only 16-year-old girl, to get killed for the whole world to show their solidarity. It didn't need for men to get executed for the crime of you know, supporting their sisters, Majid Reza Rahnavard, Mohsen, Muhammad, and many other are in the death row. Honestly, it didn't need for these innocent young girls and boys to get killed, for the whole world to understand that when we are fighting against compulsory hijab, we are fighting against one of the most barbaric regime in 21st century telling us what to wear. Many times, when I ask the leaders of democratic countries for support, they were hesitating. But now, they're showing their solidarity by cutting their hair. It is beautiful to see that your sisters Female politicians, the high representative of EU, cutting their hair to show their solidarity with young girls and women in Iran. But again, that's very, very easy. And I really don't think that cutting your hair is enough. You have to cut your ties with the Islamic Republic. You know why? I know that Swedish diplomats are here. I know that United Kingdom, United States of America, Canada, many other democratic countries have representative here, and we are just right next to United Nations, I have to use this opportunity and to say that still we have to find those four democratic countries who voted for the Islamic Republic to have a seat at the top women's body at United Nations. Still we don't know those four democratic countries. Now I want to know because they must be accountable and take the lead, not only kicking out like the Islamic Republic from United Nations, it's enough, it's, it's, it's beautiful, but it's still it's not enough. Why? Because I keep hearing from the leaders of democratic countries saying that now the re revolution is over. People are not in the streets and they are trying to get back to the nuclear talk. So I want them to pay attention to this famous expression that we use in journalism. When it bleeds, it leads. But honestly, we are talking about girls, children, kids are getting poisoned, getting raped and killed. And you really need to see bloodshed in the street to understand that this is a revolution? Another simple fact, when people were in the streets, when people were getting killed, what did you do? What did the United Kingdom do? What did you know, all those democratic countries did, apart from cutting their hair? apart from showing their solidarity. This is the right moment in our history. One of the most progressive revolution is taking place. And I believe that we, the people of Iran, are better allies than these backward mullahs. So if you go back to the negotiation with those who don't believe in negotiation because taking hostage is in their diplomacy, killing is their diplomacy, assassinating is their diplomacy, so if you go back to the negotiation table, then the history will judge you. But not only that, you are going to face these terrorists on your own soil. There is a famous saying here in America that what happened in Vegas 
going to stay in Vegas. But believe me, what happens in the Middle East is not going to stay there. The Islamic Republic is more deadlier than coronavirus, and they will infect the rest of the world. Before coming here, I asked one of the teenagers who was the target of chemical attack. I interviewed her for my own show, and I asked her that, what is your message to the leaders of democratic countries? Because this is a revolution that you are leading it, and now you are being the target of the Islamic Republic as a payback. It's a revenge by the Islamic Republic to push them back from the streets and push them back behind the curtain. And she said very, very simply that, tell them that if I was their daughters and I was the target of chemical attack, what would they do? Then do the same. Very simple. And she was saying that their daughters, the daughters of the leaders in democratic countries, their only concern is to think about how to educate themselves in their schools. But now, we don't know if we are able to go back home after going to school. Our main concern is to be alive, to survive. Our main concern is now to protect ourselves from morality police. Her simple message was this, if you're not helping us, then don't help our killers and our murderers. Recently, I asked the leaders of democratic countries to have an open investigation on this chemical attack on, on schoolgirls. In response, I heard from John Kirby from the United States of America asking the Islamic Republic to do an investigation. It means that you're asking criminals to investigate their own crimes. So I am here actually to tell you that the Islamic Republic systematically kills people, systematically oppress people, and they are good at systematically hide their own crimes. So you cannot ask criminals to investigate their own crimes when you have a specific example. A few years ago, the girls in Isfahan were the target of acid attack. You all remember that, no? What happened? Again, democratic countries call on Islamic Republic to do investigation. We achieved nothing. But now that I'm talking to you, those who actually protested against acid attack are in prison, including Nargis Mohammadi. But those who thrown acid on women's face, they are free. They are in charge to rape women. They are in charge to beat women in the streets. They are in charge to target schoolgirls on chemical attack. Another clear example is when the Islamic Republic actually, with their, uh, their revolutionary guards, shot down the Ukrainian airplane. Three days right after 176 innocent passengers got killed, three days they were denying this. And believe me, if there were not Canadians, if they were not Americans among those who got killed, they wouldn't have admitted that. So that is why I am telling you, now it's only Iranian girls are getting killed. It's only Iranian men and women are getting executed. So that is why we need the United Nations to be tough, to have an open investigation about this crime. Otherwise, believe me, we're going to receive nothing, but when we don't send any signal to Islamic Republic, when there is no consequence, when there is no punishment, then there is no reason for them to stop 
killing their innocent people. For years and years, we've been actually listening that how bad is the human rights records in Iran? How bad actor is the Islamic Republic? So we all know that. But what we don't know is why the West hesitate to help Iranians. So there are clear demands that Iranians want you to know. First, to recognize the Islamic Republic as a gender apartheid. Our new campaign, by our it means we the women of Iran and Afghanistan, has been launched recently to call on democratic countries to expand the definition of apartheid to include gender as well. So I don't think this is difficult because I'm coming from a country that girls from the age of seven won't be able to go to school. If I don't cover my massive hair, I get kicked out from school from the age of seven. I'm not allowed to sing. I'm not allowed to dance. I'm not allowed to travel abroad without getting permission from my husband or my male relative. Women are not allowed to run the country. Believe me, we the women of Iran we, and Afghanistan, we can run the country better than these backward mullahs and Taliban. Women in Afghanistan being kicked out from school. Women in Iran are facing rape in prison right now, and it's not me saying that. CNN actually revealed a story which the Revolutionary Guards and some member of the Revolutionary Guards admitted that. So all the laws in Iran are anti-women. Women are second-class citizens. We, we, we don't exist. We don't exist if we say no to Sharia laws. So if you don't call this regime a gender apartheid, then how do you call it? Tell me. So that's going to make our way easier. If you help us to actually put the definition of gender apartheid in all international laws, then no one dare to go and talk with a gender apartheid regime, especially President Biden. Because when he was young, he was the one actually supporting the ban of South Africa because of apartheid. So you cannot just include racial discrimination and then say that, okay, we don't care about women. America, Canada, Sweden, Norway, all the democratic countries are claiming that they're all for equality. They're all for women's rights. They're all for feminism. But suddenly, when it comes to Iran, women and men are not equal. When it comes to the West, all the female politicians saying that my body, my choice, and they're taking to the streets, they're brave enough to condemn Burkini ban, they're brave enough to condemn Muslim ban, but when it comes to Iran, they hesitate to do it. So they allow the government to use the bodies of a high representative of European Parliament as their own platform. And believe me, it makes me very, very angry when I see that even outside Iran, in the West, Female politicians wearing hijab, bowing to Taliban. Wow, it doesn't make you angry. Honestly, this is unbelievable. So this is 21st century, and this is the clear demand that I, I came here to ask you to help us, especially if you call yourself human rights lover, democracy lover, feel these threats. If you don't stand with the women of Iran and the women of Afghanistan, and expand the definition of apartheid to include gender apartheid, honestly, we are all going to be in trouble because Taliban and Islamic Republic, they will expand their terrorism 
to U.S. soil, Canadian soil, to the soil of Western countries. So with or without your help, I am very hopeful. The Islamic Republic took everything away from us, but not hope. I'm very hopeful with or without your help, we will get rid of the Islamic Republic very soon. But, there is a but here. But with your help, less children get killed. With your help, less women get raped. With your help, less women get kicked out from schools. With your help, less women suffer from chemical attack. And with your help, less innocent, brave men get hanged in Iran. I don't think this is too much to ask. Just think about it. And the day when you're sending your children to schools, even ask them to take action. Don't say that you're young. You, should, you shouldn't get involved in this political fight. This is a fight of young generation in Iran. And now their parents are joining them and supporting them as well. Ask them to hold the picture of girls who lost their eyes. Ask them to hold the pictures of young teenagers in Iran who got killed. And they can be the young generation here, your daughters, your sons. They can be an example for the leaders of democratic countries to be united the way that Putin and Khamenei are united. Thank you so much. Brandon Silver, Director of Policy and Projects at the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, concluded the event with a compelling appeal for concrete action to hold the Iranian regime to account. Thank you, Masi, for your always eloquent and, and inspiring remarks. But more than that, on, on behalf of the Wallenberg Center, UN Watch, I know I speak for, for everybody in this room when we extend our appreciation for your leadership and our admiration for your courage and commitment in the face of, of evil. Also think of uh, the late, great Václav Havel, who was a Czech dissident who led the Velvet Revolution, the peaceful revolution that helped overthrow the largest, most powerful Soviet empire and created the democratic freedom in the Czech Republic that persists to today. And when he was asked about you know, what really was the anchor of this movement? He said that civil society was the truest fundamental of democracy. And when I look around this room today at the movement that you're really spearheading from abroad, at the words of Goli, and at all of you from the Iranian community, from civil society, from NGOs, from embassies, I think of those words of Václav Havel, and I know that what Ambassador Ray said about seeing free democratic Iran uh, soon will, will very much hold true. Goli mentioned the um, position of Ukraine to hold Iran accountable for its contributions to crimes in Iran, and Masi, so, as Masi so eloquently put it, you know, talking about um, the need for accountability, that if there's no punishment for the crimes, the crimes will continue. And it's time to be proactive and not reactive. We saw enough votes at the UN Commission of the Status of Women, led by Canada and the US, to remove Iran from the commission. That was important. Uh, but that was very reactive. I think a proactive mechanism can be marshalling those votes, building on the momentum to actually initiate an international case to hold Iran accountable for these crimes. There's an international court of justice. These countries should get the votes at the UN General Assembly or refer the case for apartheid, 
for the torture, for all these crimes against Iranian women and against all those innocent people in Iran fighting for freedom and democracy, those are our sh shared values and it's time for our countries not just to be reactive and this important work that was done at the CSW, but to take that step forward, take Iran before the International Court of Justice, support the prosecutor of the ICC and, and encourage them to um, move forward in holding Iran accountable for its crimes there and to make sure that if there is an Iranian um, who is responsible for crimes that is finding safe harbor in your country to prosecute them. Sweden did the right thing in universal jurisdiction, but it's time to, to continue that pace elsewhere. For more information on how UN Watch spearheaded the effort to expel Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women, please visit www.unwatch.org slash standing with Iranian women. Thank you for listening to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. See you next time.